0: Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by Interim Pastor Derek Gecki. He's preaching from Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2. Today, we are wrapping up our Advent series, Uh, What Are We Waiting For? Last week, Michael took us through the birth of Jesus and what he means for all of us as a Savior who we can't or should not try to control. Today, we're going to look at the people who got to witness the event and how their stories reflect a time when nobody really had reason to hope that anything miraculous was going to happen. The world was filled with oppression, sickness, poverty, and almost no hint that God was active in the world at all. I don't know if any of you can relate to a concept like that, but uh, today we're going to look at a series of events that took place. First, uh, we're going to look at when God was silent uh, for his people. Then we're going to look at when God spoke, and finally we're going to look at when God stepped in. So when God was silent, when God spoke, and when God stepped in. Please bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, the um, Christmas story can so often become something sweet and saccharine that uh, it brings us good feelings, but sometimes we don't focus and think through what it actually meant, what it actually looked like. And um, I just pray, God, that you would be with us today as we study your word and study what actually happened, help us take it into our hearts and really understand that, depth of joy and hope we can get from it if we go deeper than the surface. I ask you, God, please guide these words. Let them be yours, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. When God was silent. uh, At at this point in history, uh, when Jesus was born, God had actually been pretty deafeningly silent to his people. Um, It was around 400 years. The last time that God's people heard anything direct was in the book of Malachi, which was written about 420 B.C., and the last couple of verses of Malachi, uh, four verses five through six, reads, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Mic drop. And that's what we had for 400-plus years. That was the last anyone heard. Um, people kept going to temple. People kept reading the scriptures, waiting for something. But the last they got was this strange, enigmatic promise, but still a promise of something coming, and then nothing for four centuries. During that time, Israel found itself once again subjugated and forced to adapt. First, it was the Greek Empire, also known as Seleucid, which I think it's based on the guy who was running it. Um, they came in and took over, managed things. Then the Romans came in, and we all know about the Roman Empire. I would hope everyone, okay. Um, <laughs> their common language gradually morphed. Uh, it used to be biblical Hebrew, but by necessity, Hebrew became less and less valid and used, so they had to learn Aramaic and Hellenistic Greek, and eventually that became the languages they used. They began to spread out away from their ancestral home, sometimes through force and exile, but sometimes voluntary. It wasn't entirely bad reasons why they had to leave. In his book, uh, Diaspora, Jews Amidst Greeks and Romans, Eric S. Gruen writes, "...the vast bulk of Jews who dwelled abroad in the Second Temple period did so voluntarily." Even where initial deportation came under duress, the relocated families remained in their new residences for generations, long after the issue of forced dislocation had become obsolete. No single objective impelled them. There were multiple motives. Large numbers found employment as mercenaries, military colonists, or enlisted men in the regular forces. Others seized opportunities in business, commerce, or agriculture. All lands were open to them. All this time, God wasn't talking. All his people had was the promise that a Messiah was coming, but there was no solid indication of when or how or what that could even look like. And after all these changes, what that could look like seemed baffling, if even possible. And they had seen, over the years, failure after failure of themselves as a kingdom. They weren't a kingdom anymore. They saw defeat after defeat. And eventually, they're just doing what they can to survive. So yes, when they disperse and some of those choices are voluntary, at that point it's just like, I don't know. I need a job. I need to feed my kids. I can't hold on to this promise of a new Israel forever. I got to survive. And as that time happened, hope in whatever this Messiah was going to do dwindled. Sometimes got extinguished. Some people tried to take things into their own hands. There were a couple of uprisings and false messiahs, all of them. Quickly quelled or died out. Uh, There are references in Acts 5. One of the Pharisees at the time mentions a a Thuetus. I hope I pronounced that right. Thuetus? Actually, maybe, I don't know. Never mind. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. Uh, Judas the Galilean. uh, They had like a few hundred people rise up and say, yeah, this is the Messiah. And then they got killed. The people dispersed. It came to nothing. And all they left really was their own death and more despair and disappointment in their wake. Worshiping the biblical God was still important, but it was a way to stay connected to their heritage, to themselves as a culture. To what degree was it actually worship? To what degree was it actually trusting that God was still active? I think it became more about familiarity than faith, more about habits than hope. Um, for those of you familiar with the musical Fiddler on the Roof, the opening song is not... "We." worship God, it's tradition. Our traditions are what make us the people we are. Now, to be fair to that story, the main character talks to God, loves God, it's all things, but the people as a whole are bound by their traditions, not necessarily their faith. And again, that question arises, how would a Messiah even work anymore? We're all over the place, we don't even have our own language, all these other forces are determining our fates, what is one king going to do? the hopelessness was pretty vast and then it just sort of morphed into apathy. I would like to guess that even if you're not feeling down or hopeless right now, got the Christmas cheer, please don't, I'm not telling you to let go of it, but I'm guessing if you're not feeling hopeless or down right now, you know the sensation well. You can't be human, you can't be a believer and not at some point wonder if God is not present or if he's abandoned you entirely. You might react by blaming yourself. You ask questions like, "Ah, have I sinned too much? Is that that one thing, that was it, that was the breaking point for God? Am I not reading my Bible enough? God dang it, five chapters a day, I'm going to do it this year. Am I not praying the right way? I'm not choosing the right phrases. I'm not praying long enough. I'm not praying short enough. Or you start to wonder if God is, let's be honest, even real or worth the effort. Is church just a set of habits to keep us in line? Is it just a familiar setting to maintain our friend groups? The silence sometimes can become too much and you don't see any promises fulfilled. You don't see any growth. You can't feel anything beyond, I have to keep doing this because this is what Christians do. That's that's what we do. And if you try to take things into your own hands to grab your own promises and bring your own salvation about, even if it goes well for a while, and it can, it rarely goes the way you think. A bigger job with more pay often translates into less time. Um, you're sick of being single, and the loneliness is just so intense that eventually you just settle for whoever you can find. And again, they might be a good person for now, but the relationship, there might be something you don't see. Or you get tired of being trampled on, so you start to lash out, you push back, you grow bitter, you get mean. It's extremely hard in those situations to not think of silence as absence. Okay, let, I just want to acknowledge that. It is hard to not think of silence as absence, but when God seems silent, it's usually because he's working. During this time, the Jews were being dispersed, right? But that means so was their faith. Like, yes, maybe it was starting to devolve into just tradition and just habit, but the message was still going out. The Jews lost Hebrew as a common language, yes, but they learned how to speak other languages and thus were able to communicate with a far larger group of people. This was when the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, was written. Before then, the scriptures were only in Hebrew. Suddenly, a whole new people group has access to it. And by having their kingdom repeatedly dismantled, this hinted that the Messiah was coming for something else, not just some national coup. If you don't have a kingdom anymore, what are you liberating? These slow transformations, and remember, 400 years, 400 years, they were slow, but they were paving the way. And we, in hindsight, can see It paved the way so the gospel could spread like lightning once it happened. But because it took place over 400 years, there's no way anyone going through it could have understood the significance. They'd never see nor could have foreseen what the end result was. They had no reason to think what the Christmas story eventually became. God is always working in your life, but you can't see the big picture like he can. And the work that he's doing might be long, it might be painful, and it probably won't make any sense to us. That might go your entire life. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, God reminds us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What God was preparing his people for was way beyond what they had considered, what they even could try to consider. The end results are never what we'd expect, which leads us to a different problem. When God spoke. Now, looking at our passages today, these are three clearly defined moments when God started speaking again. Remember, 400 years of silence, and then all of a sudden, bam, angels in the sky the most supernatural event to be witnessed since the Old Testament. Like this hadn't happened, not just in 400 years, we're talking like all the way back to like Moses time, like angels weren't a thing, okay? Suddenly there's a prophetic word in the temple in the heart of Jerusalem. Simeon comes up and announces, here he is, Messiah. But it's a baby. It's not some 20-year-old thinking he is the Messiah, it's a baby. And then we have an entourage of visitors insisting the Messiah has been born and they're actively looking for him. So what do we see in each of these instances? First, we see that the ones who hear these words and take them to heart are on the outside of what's acceptable in society. The shepherds, I'm sure some of you have heard this before, they were lowly, blue-collar workers, considered unclean because of their job. They're dealing with dirty animals all the time. According to some accounts, they weren't trustworthy. Like a lot of people, they would like let their sheep eat on the neighbor's grass. They would sometimes, you know, take things that didn't belong to them. And there are some accounts that say that they weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law because that's how untrustworthy they were. God chooses these guys as first witnesses. (laughs) Simeon isn't acknowledged in the scriptures anything more than an old man at the temple. He's not a priest. Doesn't seem to be. There's no indication he is. He doesn't seem to have any status. He's just, all that's said is he's righteous and devout. And based on who wrote it, Luke, who was taking accounts from people at the time, it was probably Mary and Joseph who said that. So, well, I'm going to trust Mary and Joseph, but there was nothing like in the public records that, that said anything of that nature. And then finally, the wise men, and the word used for wise men also means magi, which is like, they were astrologers. They might have had horoscopes. They uh, they would have been scientists of the time, but that's where you know you get a little wishy-washy on what science looks like. Um, so just they might have they might have been hippies. And 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 thus because but especially especially they were Gentiles which for the Jewish people meant they were unclean. Not because they're inherently unclean, but Jewish people always assumed that Gentiles were doing unclean things, so they were regarded as unclean. When these people come to share the news, only Mary and Joseph, who themselves, remember, had angels come and talk to them, actually took it to heart. The people in Bethlehem, if you go back to the passage, you can... Either read it now or study it later, you don't have to believe me right off the bat. But if you go back, the people in Bethlehem, when the shepherds come and tell them the news, it says they wondered. They were amazed. Doesn't say they went to check the stable. Doesn't say they followed up. You know, you got a, a, some guy that, again, you think might steal from you, you know, is dirty. They're banging on your door. Hey, come, the Messiah's come. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, how do I lock the door? <laughs> like, oh, we'll go, we'll check it later. Simeon is declaring his prophecy in the heart of the temple. Again, no priest comes to ask what's going on. There's no indication anyone really cares. The wise men, they go straight to the people in charge, King Herod, and consequently the chief priests and scribes. Yet nobody even sends a scout to Bethlehem to just double check. They, they ask the wise men to go do it. You follow up on this, but they don't look. Look. And Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem. So, like, we are, we, I know we talk a lot about it. Back in the day, you know, you walk uphill both ways. Six miles is a lot, but it's not that much. Like, if you were if you convinced that, the, if you're told the Messiah is born, you can make the trip. <laughs> but they don't. They don't even, they just sort of shrug. God is finally speaking again, but no one's listening because it's either not what they wanted him to say or it's not coming to them the way they wanted to hear it. The witnesses, those trusted with the message, are not high priests or royal messengers. They're lowlifes. They're foreigners. They're people who we have no reason to believe that they know what they're talking about. People are hearing stuff also, like I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. All people. I, I thought this was our Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Why do they get to be looped in? A slew of pagan scientists coming to worship the king of the Jews and none of our priests who serve God daily and memorize the scriptures even knew he'd been born? What happened to our Messiah? How can he liberate us from the Romans and be a great joy for all people? I think they'd be annoyed at the very least. Why do criminals and people outside the faith know about him before we do? We've been the faithful ones. We've been doing all the things. We've been holding the traditions. No. No, there's no possible reason God would use these methods or say these things. This can't be God. It's not. Done. not even going to discuss it. They didn't get what they expected, so they just ignored it. What are we expecting? What do we actually want from God? If we're being honest, please, this is a safe place to be honest. I think most of the time, all we really want is for Him to solve or take away our problems. We pray for relief from stress. We pray for health. We pray for a good job. We pray for good relationships. These are all good things. And the Bible is full of passages where God actively asks you to ask for those things. He invites you to his throne to ask for those things. But they're all about comfort and security. They're all about maintaining our status quo. And anytime something challenges our comfort, our desire Usually our instinct is to run away and get back to the status quo, to what we're comfortable with. I think some of you know I'm a Marvel fan. Um, uh, I think the newer movies are pretty bad, and uh, <laughs> what can you do? You know, They've gone on like 30-plus. It's time to take a break. And, but the older ones used to be better, and they still had some stinkers. One of the stinkers was Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, big mess of a movie but there was a, there was a there was a, there was a moment in there that that had some profundity to it um, so for those who don't know uh, apologize as I nerd out for a bit Ultron is an AI program that Tony Stark Iron Man and Bruce Banner the Hulk when he's not angry uh, they, they built it to try and serve as a planet-wide defense system okay they had previous movie aliens had invaded they were like oh crap, there's aliens we better do something so they built Ultron the Point being, let's protect the planet. Let's protect the Earth. Ultron gains sentience. You know, a little prophetic of a movie, I guess, since it was almost 10 years ago. Um, And it comes to the conclusion that the only path to peace is to wipe out humanity. And what he says is, I'm sorry, I know you mean well. You just didn't think it through. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. Ultron's point is that humanity is inherently corrupt. You can't protect something that's always breaking down because the problem is from within, not without. And I believe we want God to protect us, but we don't want him to change us. We want a shield so we can always remain the way we are but have God affirm our positions as the righteous Holy ones, we did the things. God won't have it because he can't shield us from ourselves. He needs to go deeper. In his, you know, the book that most people quote from, from C.S. Lewis, *Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read it, let me know. I will get you a copy. Um, there's a, he, he, he illustrates it like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild That house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live it, it himself. The Israelites were expecting a shield in their Messiah, someone to step in and force the rest of the world to get in line with, a, with what they thought was good and right and proper. And keep in mind, those ideas of what's good and right and proper are rooted in scripture. But Jesus wasn't coming to pick up a familiar story of behavior modification and just get it back on track. He was coming to flip the script. So when God did step in, when he actually stepped in, despite the fantastic announcements, surrounding Christ's birth, he arrived in a cesspool of poverty, dirt, and violence. Before he was even born, he was kicked to the curb. He was forced to stay outside where the animals were. And as someone who has a lot of animals at home, for those of you who don't know, (laughs) we have five cats, Mm -hmm. a bird, a cockatiel, and ten chickens. (laughs) Um, And I can tell you that where they live and sleep and eat, especially outside, it is disgusting disgusting oh it is awful it is everything you imagine it is and worse (laughs) and that's that was Jesus's delivery room his parents when they went to temple to perform the ritual purification which is was normal for Jews Jews of the time after birth um, they could only afford the bare minimum sacrifice for purification which was two turtle doves couldn't even get that pear tree Within a year or two, something of you got it. Okay, good. Um, within a year or two, King Herod was gunning for him simply because he existed. He hadn't done anything, and suddenly he's got assassins after him. And this, this wasn't just a chosen hero, like most people assume the Messiah to be. This was God himself. And yet he came like this tiny, fragile, covered in blood, surrounded by excrement, entirely reliant on a teenage girl for sustenance? If you told anyone of the time, versed in scripture, that God himself was coming, you'd expect fire and earthquakes and death to anyone who so much glanced at him, because that's how it was. That's that's how it happened in the Old Testament. You were lucky if you survived an encounter with God. No wonder nobody believed the shepherds or Simeon or the wise men. How could this be God incarnate? Why would God choose this way to come to us? And what hope could this possibly give anyone? We were waiting for God to show up and fix everything, and instead he shrinks himself down into a helpless baby. Now we're really in trouble. When Jesus Christ stepped into human form, he forever identified himself with us. I don't know if that clicks right away, but he is forever in a human body. When we see him come back the, when he's resurrected years later, still a human body. He's not just spirit anymore. He still has the scars. When he comes back in Revelation, it's, he's still described as having a human body. He is forever connected to us. He didn't just come for 33 years and now he's back to his status quo. And what's more, he identified himself with the worst parts of us and dove headfirst into the pain and suffering of our lives. He has personally known rejection, poverty, what it's like to be exposed to pestilence and violence. You think he never got sick? Yeah, of course, the gospel writers aren't going to write about it, but if he was growing up as a child, he would have gotten colds, he would have gotten coughs, probably would have thrown up a few times. Like, I can't imagine that he went through his entire life and only the cross was when he actually suffered anything beyond a splinter. He knows what it's like to have no comfort, no shield, and no ability to return to the status quo. And don't forget what his status quo would have been. Godhood. He got into the thick of it with us so that he could fix things from the inside out. The problem with humanity is always on the inside. It's not the stuff we want him to shield us from, it's in here. And by taking on our humanity and everything that entailed, he could take the worst of us to the cross and leave it nailed there if we let him, you have to let him. Letting him take the worst of yourself, letting him take your status quo and nail it to the cross and change you even when it hurts or you don't understand why or you can't see the end result. It's the only way he can prepare you for when he comes again. And these changes, let's not mince words, it can feel like death. Whether you're Unbeliever coming to faith or you're an existing believer who's coming to a new level with him. If you are always comfortable, watch out because I don't know what that means for you. And what happens when he comes again? Well, this time, he will set things right way beyond what was expected the first time But if we cling to our comforts and refuse to let him in, refuse to let him knock down some walls, then setting things right includes kicking us out. But if we accept his way of saving us, not ours, his way, if we let him take our dinky heart cottages and turn them into palaces, then we won't just be protected, we'll be something more. In Revelation 22, verses three through five, it reads, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's us. We will reign forever and ever. Emmanuel, God with us, also means us with God. He came down to our level so he could raise us up to his. And once we're there, once he comes again, once he restores us, not just restores us, but glorifies us beyond what we could ever have possibly been otherwise, there's not going to be any more silence. There's not going to be any more confusion. There's not going to be any more tears. No more loneliness. That's what Christmas means to me. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.